Well, let's grab our seats again. If you have a Bible, great. If you don't, that's okay. Just steal it off the person next to you. I'm going to read it anyway in a moment. If you turn with me, please, any Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. For those of you that are visiting Sovereign Grace or new to Sovereign Grace, we're presently in a, in a series looking at the book of Isaiah. We're not going through each and every chapter of Isaiah, but we are taking different sections in order that we may behold our Redeemer and see God for who he really is. And I want us to, we're actually we're looking at a couple of different chapters this morning, but I want us to begin by looking at chapter 9, and we're just going to look at two verses, two incredible verses. And there is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. So let's read them together. He writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. But once again, we gather around your word, which is perfect and unchanging and infallible. And we gather around your word knowing that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, able to pierce our hearts, pierce our very beings, to encourage, to correct, to comfort, to bring hope. Lord, would you then do, by your grace this morning, your revealing work in our hearts? Would you reveal to us what you want to reveal? And would we see you for the great God you really are? Lord, open our eyes to behold the wonders of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, there are certain teachers that we encounter in our lives that do, in fact, have a habit of changing our view of the world forever, don't they? Different teachers that we go to school with, that we remember from school, that we remember they had a significant impact on us and really our view of the world. One of my teachers that did that was a guy called Mr. Searle, who was my biology teacher when I went to secondary school. So I was 12 years old, and he was my biology teacher. And I was very nervous about meeting Mr. Searle for the first time because he had a reputation. In the grammar school that I went to, no one wanted to be taught by Mr. Searle. And the reason for that is because he was quite scary. And so I remember being in Form 1B. I'd first arrived at school. It was my first week there, and it was biology time. And, and it, we found out that we have indeed got Mr. Searle. And we were all really nervous about the whole thing. And, you know, he didn't fail us because when we first arrived outside his door, he came out of the door with a javelin in his hand. I said, 1B, to your right. And we're all like, oh my gosh. So we're just standing in line and we're all waiting to come in. And he's like, after me. And we walk in and he's like, right, you know, he's put us all in alphabetical order. And we're like, we are scared stiff, nervous about we're clearly going to be stabbed or something right now. And he's got this massive javelin. 
And he says, right then, boys. And he's walking around with his javelin. And he suddenly gets right at the end of the javelin and just goes, boof, on the massive blackboard. And we nearly wet ourselves right then. The whole form is just like, oh, my gosh. And one of the kids then, in the very first lesson, decided that he wasn't that scared, that he could take on Mr. Searle. At which point he walked out with his javelin to this boy. He got him from just behind the back bit of his hair at the bottom of his neck, picked him up, and put him under the tap for about five minutes. It was like water torture right there. You know, and, and for the whole, whole experience of being with Mr. Searle, it was, it was quite frightening. Um, but at the same time, Mr. Searle, actually when he started to teach biology, was a fantastic teacher. And I'll never forget the, the lesson. Well, we were about six months in by now, so it wasn't quite as scary as, as we thought when we first started. And when we arrived in the biology class, he had microscopes set up on all of our desks. And prior to that point, I'd never, never seen a microscope, certainly never looked for a microscope. And so he sat down at the desk, and he's like, right, don't look into it yet. And we're like, okay, and you might get the javelin out if we do, so we won't. And, and so we're sitting there waiting, and he's got this whole group of leaves and he starts talking to us about the way a leaf works and all about photosynthesis and how that it's been designed in created order. He didn't believe in God, but designed in created order that, that the sun would come and this leaf would create energy for itself to grow and give off oxygen. And, and it was pretty cool and it was very interesting. And even then at my age, I was certainly a God-fearer. I believe that God made things. And you thought, this is quite amazing that God's made these leaves to do this this way. And he said, right, come and get one of these leaves and I want you to take it back and I want you to put it under your microscope and then look. And as I looked, I was amazed. Because the leaf itself, hearing it about being described, you just thought, this is so amazing. But then you put it under a microscope and you start to see the veins of which it's made with. You start to, the closer you get, you start to see the cells that are actually operating and you start to see how incredible these things are that you can barely understand or see with your normal eye. A few weeks later then, it was the middle of winter and it started to snow and he made us all run outside and get a handful of snow. And then we ran in with the snow and he told us to put a snowflake under the microscope. And the same thing happened as you realized, this is amazing. And as a God-fearer, even growing up, uh, he changed my life really. He changed my view of the world because he made our creator God bigger in my eyes. As I saw how majestic God is, what he is and his wonder and splendor over created order. Well, as we study together the book of Isaiah, it's my hope as your pastor that each and every week that I have the privilege of teaching and Brendan has the privilege of teaching, that we would get the microscope out in this book. You see, even a brief overview of the book of Isaiah will leave us affected. There's no doubt about that. It's an incredible book. And if you just read it from start to finish, even quickly, you will be affected. But I think it's when you get the microscope out and take certain sections of this book that you start to be staggered you start to be truly affected and and amazed at who God really is in his splendor and in his majesty. A few weeks ago, then, we looked at chapter 6, and we got the microscope out on that chapter. And we saw the holiness of God, didn't we? Just how incredible God is, high and lifted up with the, the train of his robe filling the temple. Last week, Brendan then took us to the judgment of God in chapter 5. And it was a fearful thing, in a sense, wasn't it? To see who God really is. Who he is in his righteous wrath. Well today as we get the microscope out on chapter 9. I want us to see the wisdom of God. And here then is my hope this morning. My hope is that as the curtain comes back on the wisdom of God. On this chapter that we would see and savor. 
the gracious and loving wisdom of God. See, folks, I want, to see, I want us to see the gracious and loving wisdom of God in this chapter, in the chapters around, because I think just seeing it in and of itself will affect us. When we see God for who he really is, it's an incredible experience. And when you see him as the all-knowing, all-wise being above all beings, it's an incredible moment to see how great he really is. And yet I'm also eager that we would see it this morning because this divine attribute of his loving and gracious wisdom also plays in to his divine providence. And how incredible that truth is. See, God's divine providence, I think, is a doctrine of the Bible which can be so challenging and can be so perplexing for many. And I understand that. See, the understanding of the providence of God is the whole understanding that God is sovereign, that he rules and governs over all things. The whole point of providence is that God is completely and utterly, ultimately in control of all things. He ordains all things, which means he causes some things, allows other things, but ultimately he's at the bottom of it all. He ordains all things to come to being by his majesty and his splendor. Well, I think that is a challenging doctrine for us to understand, isn't it? Particularly when life is tough. Well, life's good. We love the fact God's providence. But when life's tough, it can be a tough doctrine because you start to really ask the question, Lord, why? Why why are you allowing this to happen to me? If you truly love me, why am I sick? If you truly love me, why have I just lost my job? If you truly truly watch over me and, and want to use all things together for the good, then why is it none of my relationships ever work out? There can be mystery attached to providence that can be very difficult to comprehend. And yet the truth is, when we understand the providence of God, I think it goes from being a challenge to a great comfort. It's a doctrine that's given to us in Scripture to comfort our souls as Christians. R.C. Sproul, then, in his wonderful book, The Invisible Hand, which is an outstanding book on the providence of God, as he goes through God's providence, right at the end, he concludes by saying this. He says, The providence of God, then, is our fortress, our shield, and our very great reward. It is what provides courage and perseverance for his saints. Oh, my friends, I think he's right. God's providence is our fortress, our shield, our very great reward. And understood correctly, it is something that provides courage and perseverance for us as his saints. To know that he is ultimately in control is a very comforting thing. But the only way it will ever be a comfort, listen, is when we understand his invisible hand is being guided by his majestic, loving and gracious wisdom. It's his attribute that informs his providence. And it says as we fall in love with the attribute that is his wisdom, that we start to understand that in his providence then, I have a great sweet peace. Because I know him. And I know who he is that's in control. And so this morning is my hope then that we would see and savor the gracious and loving wisdom of God. And I have four points then. Four glimpses of the gracious and loving wisdom of God that I think is in chapter 9 and also the end of chapter 6 and chapter 11, which we're going to flick to at different points as well. And so here's the first thing I want us to see as we glimpse at his wisdom. Number one, behold the wisdom of God in the calling of Isaiah. 
See, last week, Brendan did a great job of taking us once again through chapter 5, and indeed, really, chapters 1 through 5. And by way of background, we need to understand where we're up to. What we saw there in chapters 1 through 5 is predominantly the judgment of God, isn't it? It's his wrath. If you remember, Israel are not exactly rocking the world at this point. The people of God, Israel, are living in a season of total rejection of God. They're experiencing great peace. King Uzziah has been reigning for 52 years. Most people would have only known him as king. And it's all gone great for them. They've been at peace with all the superpowers around them. They've been prospering. They've been wealthy as a nation. Um, Everything they seem to be doing as a nation seems to be going great. And yet at the same time, they've exchanged the creator for the created. They've started to rebel against the Lord. They're happy to tip their hat to him and now and again offer a sacrifice to him or something of that nature. But ultimately, they're not turning their faces towards the Lord. They're turning their faces away from the Lord. They're greedy. They're bribers. They are arrogant. They are drunkards. They have no regard nor care for what it is to live for God as their Lord. They're not into that. And in their arrogance and in their self-assessment, they have no regard then for this idea of impending judgment. You must be joking. Life is thriving here. Why would God judge us? And even if he does, I don't care. They just had no regard for who God was. And I think as Brendan helpfully pointed out, Sydney's not that much different to that. You start telling people about the judgment of God, it's a reality. And they go, yeah, right. That's exactly what Israel was doing. They had no regard for the Lord. He was, he was their Lord. These were the people of God. And yet they had abandoned him, exchanged the creator for the created. And yet impending judgment was indeed coming on their lives. Whether they liked it or not, God was not going to be mocked. And in his holiness and his righteousness, he was not just going to sit by and excuse their sin. In his righteousness and his holiness, he was going to judge their sin in righteous anger. And yet in his grace, in chapter 6, he then calls Isaiah, doesn't he? He calls a prophet. He could have just wiped his nation out there and then, gone, be done. I told you, you rejected, you're done. But he doesn't. In the year that King Uzziah died... Isaiah finds himself in the temple as a God-fearer, worshipping God. And in that moment, he sees God for who he really is. He sees the throne room of the heavenly realms opened up before him. He sees the King of kings and Lord of lords with the train of his robe filling the temple. He hears the seraphim calling to one another. For even the temple starts to shake, such as their splendor and magnificence. And yet even the seraphim are covering their eyes because the holiness of God that sits before them is too bright for them to behold. And in the year that King Uzziah dies, Isaiah sees this vision. He believes that in that moment, surely he's going to be struck down by God. But instead, God in his grace sends a seraphim to fly to him to touch his mouth with a coal from the altar, which ultimately always pointed to Jesus. And he justifies him and forgives him and makes him righteous. And Isaiah is so humbled and so amazed as he continues to listen into the Godhead talking and he overhears the discussion about who is going to go to these people to warn them, to help them. Isaiah is there with his hand up. I'll go. 
Send me, Lord. Here I am, send me. And God does agree to that. That's why Isaiah is there. He wants to call this young man to be his prophet. But look now, turn with me to Isaiah 6. And look at what happens unexpectedly next. Isaiah has agreed to go and represent God to the people of God, to Israel. And God begins to give him a message. With me at verse 9. It says, Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, meaning God, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That is an unexpected message. It's all been building to this point. Isaiah is called before the Lord. Lord, I'm here. Send me. What do you want me to say? i tell you what I want you to say, Isaiah. I want you to go to them and I want you to communicate to them the appending judgment that is on them. But I also want you to let them know that they won't listen to you. Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you. And I want you to go to them and I want you to tell them that they're not going to listen to you. Really, Lord? Well, he then continues, Lord, in verse 11, then I said, how long, O Lord? Lord, how long are they not going to listen to me before? Because if you want me to go to them, I'll go to them. But how long are they going to reject what I'm saying to them? And he said, until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Lord, I'll go, send me. What do you want me to say? Well, I want you to tell them, Isaiah, that they're not going to listen to you. The judgment is coming, but they're not going to respond to you. And if you want to know how long you're going to be doing that for, you're going to be doing that until the whole of the land lays in waste. Because I'm going to sweep through them like a fire in a forest. I'm going to come after the people of God and I'm going to strike them down in my holiness and in my majesty and in my wrath. And you want to know how long that's going to take? It's going to take a long time. And they will not listen to you until I am done. My friends, that is a somewhat unexpected message, don't you think? One can wonder, Lord, what on earth are you up to here? What are you trying to communicate? through Isaiah in this moment. And yet the reality is, my friends, in this design and in the design of this message, it is divine brilliance. It is divine genius. Because God ultimately is calling Isaiah for the remnant. He's calling him to speak to another people. You see, when God came in in his majesty and his righteousness and his holiness and his wrath, he struck down the people of God. Assyria would come in and completely overthrow Israel. And in years to come, Babylonia would come in and completely take over the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. And in both occasions, God comes in to strike them down through these nations. He is the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of nations and he can do as he wills. 
And so he brings in other superpowers to strike down his people, and yet in his grace, he keeps a remnant. When Assyria come into Israel, they round up a few to march them off to Assyria to be their captives there. And the rest who remain are laid waste to. But there's a remnant that leaves. And you know what this remnant had? They had with them a prophet that they knew. And they had with them a man that said, this is exactly as they said the way it would go. Don't you remember? And I've been found to be right before. I've told you before what judgment would come. I've told you before that people wouldn't listen. They didn't. But his story never ended there. His story was always one of restoration and hope and grace. So behold the genius of God. He calls a prophet, not primarily to the people who are going to be judged. He calls a prophet for the remnant. And it will be the remnant that would realize and see, Isaiah, you were right then, so you must be right now about the restoration. You were right about the destruction, so you must be right now that hope is coming and that God will redeem us. Thank you, Lord. Is that genius or what? That is divine wisdom and divine genius. So behold in his call the loving and gracious wisdom of God. He calls a man to tell people, you're not going to listen to me. But in doing that and seeing it play out, it would be that very man that people would listen to and have a hope in God redeeming them. It's complex, eh? Behold the wisdom of God. This is the way he operates. Behold then also the wisdom of God in the working of his plan, number two. So Isaiah's message was not just one of judgment. Isaiah's message was always gloriously one of hope, one of redemption, one of restoration. So look now at chapter 11, verse 1, and see the incredible wisdom of God in the working of his plan. See, the whole background to this point is as I have said, God coming in through the nations, through Assyria to the, for the north and Babylon to the south and laying waste to them but pulling a remnant from them. And in chapter 11, verse 1, he says this, And there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. You know, on the face of it, To Israel in this moment, things are looking a little bleak. You imagine the scene of a rainforest or in the bush when a fire has swept through it. Everything is black. It's destroyed. Bulldozers have come in. Everything's been removed. And all there is in the ground is a few stumps. And God's saying that's what Israel's like. That's what's going to have happened. In Genesis chapter 12, God promises Abraham that Israel will be a great nation. God makes a covenantal promise with Abraham. You know what? I'm going to make you through my majesty into a great nation. Your people will number more than the stars of heavens. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And yet now we catch up with them and we see them as a stump in the ground as a forest fire has come through. That seems a little strange, don't you think? Lord, I thought you were going to make us into a mighty nation. I thought you were going to make the nations great through us. And yet, Lord, we're just in captivity in Assyria. Lord, there's only a few of us left. What happened to your plan? 
to make the nations truly great? What happened to the plan to make Israel us a, a blessing to the nations? Well, it seems to have gone wrong. We've been held captive by Assyria. Lord, surely it's gone wrong. On the face of it, this situation does appear very, very bleak. But in reality, God in his gracious and loving wisdom, even now, was working a plan. A plan for Israel's good. A plan for ultimately God's glory. To bring one day a shoot through the stump of Jesse. Through Israel. That would grow into a branch that would bear fruit. That would be a blessing to the nations. But right now, all they can see is a stump. And you know, the Old Testament is littered with examples of God doing this. And the truth is, God still does this today, doesn't he? We go through situations in our lives where our life appears to be a mere stump in the ground. Lord, what are you doing? My life appears to be a desolate place right now. The Old Testament is littered with examples, with situation after situation, where it appears to be incredibly bleak, and yet all the time, God is on the move. And so you see Genesis chapter 22 and the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is the one who God has promised to, made the promise to, that I'm going to make you into a great nation. That your descendants will number more than the stars. That I will bless all the nations through your descendants, Abraham. God then incredibly and miraculously gets his hundred-year-old wife pregnant. He gives birth, she gives birth to Isaac. And as this boy grows up, he says, right, now I want you to sacrifice him. What? But she's over a hundred. I've only got her pregnant once. And now you want me to kill him? Yeah. So he takes him from that place. And God says, you know what? I want you to follow my hand. And he takes him to what would appear to be most of the most strange place to go. For three days, they walk out to a place called Mount Moriah. And Abraham builds then a, a bed of wood, an altar. He binds Isaac. He raises the dagger above his only son and he's just about to thrust it into his son when an angel of the Lord says, Stop! I've provided another for your son. And he looks around and there's a ram caught in the thicket, a thicket that God made, a thicket that God caused to grow, a thicket that God had placed and the ram is caught in the thicket and the Lord makes it clear, I want you to sacrifice the ram instead of your son. Abraham, you have shown yourself to be faithful. And so Abraham takes the ram and he takes his son off and he puts the ram on and he sacrifices the ram to the Lord. And it says in the book of Hebrews that in that moment, Abraham saw the day of the Lord and he rejoiced. He saw in that moment something of Jesus. He saw in that moment something of how God would send a sacrifice, not only for him and his son, but all the people that would come after him. The three-day walk that seems mysterious and strange to Mount Moriah, Mount Moriah in archaeology would be the place of Jerusalem. Mount Moriah would be the place of Calvary. Mount Moriah would be the place where Jesus, as the perfect ram, would die instead of Isaac and Israel and everyone to come. It appeared to Abraham prior to that moment to be bleak. He's about to kill his son. But God was always working a plan. You get to Genesis chapter 37, the story of Joseph. 
Joseph has got a few issues. He's his dad's favorite. And as a result of that, he's got a few issues. And that he knows he's his dad's favorite. He's not learned any tact with his brothers. And so he lets them know, I know that I'm dad's favorite. And guess what, dudes? I've had this dream. And I know I'm the youngest. But I've had this dream. And it's this dream about, you're all going to bow to me. He tells them once and they've had enough. He tells them twice and they're like, right, that is it. This dude is out of here. I cannot cope with him any longer. I'm not just going to beat him up. We're going to kill him. They've had enough of this boy that is a complete upstart as far as they're concerned. Their older brother managed to convince them not to kill him, instead to just put them in a hole. And then the Midianite camels come along with slave traders. And he says, you know what, rather than kill him, let's sell him into slavery. Let's do that. He can stay alive. Next thing you know, this little young lad, Joseph, is on his way on the back of a camel to Egypt. He's been sold into slavery by his brothers. It could look a bit bleak, don't you think, when you're heading off to Egypt by yourself in slavery? Well, Joseph gets there. He's sold to Potiphar, who's one of the captains of the guards. And it goes incredibly well for him. He's given loads of authority in this man's house. God blesses Joseph. And part of his wife takes a fancy to him. Joseph stands for righteousness and truth, as we're called to do at different times in our lives, and times when we assume that, oh, God's going to bless us. God did bless him. He gets put in jail. And it appears to be going all very wrong. Lord, I, I stood for your truth. I resisted part of his wife, but now I'm in jail. And he's there for two years of his life. Can you imagine being Joseph? Would that appear a little bleak to you? One minute I was back there. I was my dad's pet. Next minute I'm here. I'm in prison. Lord, as I stand for you, where have you gone? And yet through a divine mystery of events, Joseph interacts with a cupbearer that's also been put in prison. And when this guy comes out and he stands at Pharaoh's right hand, Pharaoh explains to him, I've had this dream. And it's a really weird dream, but I can't interpret it. And none, nobody that I employ can interpret it. And the cupbearer says, I know a man who can interpret dreams. Joseph. So Joseph is pulled out of prison in that moment. And he stands before Pharaoh. And he says, I know what your dream is. Your dream is to show that there will be seven years of drought. And then there will be seven years of plenty. For seven years, sorry, the other way around. Seven years it's going to go great. And then for seven years it's going to go horrible. There's going to be famine in the land. And Pharaoh says, I believe you. I can see how God is at work in your life. And he makes him, one minute from a prison, now he makes him prime minister of the country. you imagine that? You're now like Julia Gillard over all things. You know what I'm saying? And in this season, if you're Julia Gillard in this season, you're everything. You're ruling everything. For seven years then, they all listen to Joseph. And he, he makes the nation great. He provides food for all of the nation. And when the years of famine come... God then brings Joseph's family all the way to Egypt. And God, through Joseph, saves his family, saves Israel from famine. And right at the end of the book, when Jacob dies, the brothers start to panic and they're saying, Joseph, are you, are you going to kill us now? Because we kept you away from our father for years and now he's gone. And Joseph says in chapter 50, no, because what you meant for evil, God always meant for good. Joseph, with a divine perspective, understood God was ultimately in control of it all. 
at different times along the journey. It must have looked so bleak for Joseph. But he understands ultimately God is in control. He's the ultimate one that is controlling all these scenarios, all these variables for your good and his glory. So you don't need to fear. I trust the Lord. Well, in Isaiah chapter 11, we see the same thing. We see another story, another example of God stepping into a bleak situation to bring hope and to bring glory. For there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. For to Israel it would appear that they are just a stump in the ground, a mere shadow of their former selves. But as they stand there, they hear a prophecy through the servant Isaiah where he makes it clear to them, that yes, although you are a stump, one day one will come through that stump. There will be a shoot through the line of Jesse, through the line of the tribe of Judah, and that shoot will become a branch, and that branch will bear fruit. Everything that God promised you as a nation, that he would make you great, that he would bless all the nations of the world through you, will still come to pass. So hold in there, Israel, because God's still on the move. What looks bleak to you, God is still on the move. My friends, have you ever considered how many variables there are in our lives? In the average day, there are variables each and every day, aren't there? Decisions we make, places we go, things we say, things we don't say, things we do, things we don't do. And yet ultimately what we discover is God mysteriously is at the bottom of it all. He's the one that's weaving all things into his plan. He did it with Abraham and Isaac, did it with Joseph, He does it with Israel. And what a hope then he gave them of a day to come when he would make them great again. What gracious and loving wisdom this reveals, don't you think, in the working of his plan. Is your brain fizzing yet? It should do. Because we're looking at the wisdom of God. And he's far above and beyond us in every way. Here's something else we can see. Number three. Behold the wisdom of God in the sending of a king. And that brings us back to Isaiah chapter 9 again. Let's read those verses again. Because this was the pinnacle of what it was going to mean for God to work his plan. For out of the shoot, out of the stump of Jesse, a shoot would come, a branch that would bear fruit. And it's here in Isaiah chapter 9 that we hear about that shoot that branch that was to come. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You know, the very pinnacle of God's plan was the sending of a king. For this king that he's describing here would be one to whom every knee would bow. This is the king who would be the king of glory. This is the king that one day everybody would bow before because the government of all of the cosmos would be upon his shoulders and he would be called Wonderful Counselor. 
You know, that's a wonderful statement. In the Hebrew, a counselor isn't somebody you sit with to try and get a bit of advice. In the Hebrew, the setting is one of, of an individual who's able to make wise plans and then bring them to fruition. They're able to make wise plans above and beyond everything else and then actually bring them through in their lives. And this king then is a wonderful counselor. He is wonderfully wise in all things and is able in his majesty to always bring them to fruition. This king will be an everlasting father, quite literally a benevolent protector. God isn't saying, you know, this king is going to be a father. We're not talking about the first person of the Trinity here. What he is saying is he will be like me. He will be a benevolent protector like me. He will have the ability in his life to benevolently protect all things. And he will be a prince of peace. A ruler whose reign will bring about lasting and holy peace. Not but between mankind, but between God and man as well. And it's this last phrase that he uses here, the last of the two-word couplets, where he says, Mighty God, that he reveals who this king really is. Because he's not just going to be anybody. He's not just going to be a wonderful counselor and an everlasting father and a prince of peace. He is indeed going to be God himself. God himself is going to come as the king of Israel. Here again, my friends, this is where we see the loving and gracious wisdom of God, isn't it? God knew in his sovereignty that if he was truly going to save Israel, that if he was truly going to save the world because of their sin, his wrath must be quenched. Somebody must be judged. Judgment must exist for him to be righteous and holy. God knew that. But in then his gracious and loving wisdom, he discerns the only one that's going to be able to do that is me. So I'm going to come. Out of the stump of Jesse, I'm going to become a shoot. Out of the line of Judah, I'm going to come to earth. I'm going to send my son, the second person of the Trinity. He is going to become the everlasting father. He is going to become the wonderful counselor. He will be the ultimate prince of peace. He will be mighty God for Israel. I'm going to give you a king like you've never known before. Because I'm going to send you me. I'm going to come after you. You know, the line then that really got to me as I studied this this week is this last line. We're having discerned this and described this in response to Israel's judgment and the wrath to come, having designed that he will come himself, that he will send his son. He says, And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. His zeal. That's how it's going to be possible. All the variables that it would mean in cosmic history to bring about the arrival of his son. All the events that would lead to Israel being a blessing to the nations. All the millions and millions of variables would all be overseen by the Lord. And he would do it in zeal. Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Raymond Alton Jr. in his Isaiah commentary, he says it this way. 
He says, what does the word zeal tell us about God? My Hebrew lexicon defines this word as ardor, zeal or jealousy. This Hebrew word is cognate with an Arab, Arab, Arabic verb meaning to become intensely red, suggesting the idea of color flooding a person's face with the flush of deep emotion within. This Hebrew word is used for a husband's jealousy for the love of his wife, Proverbs 6, for the envy that drives human effort, Ecclesiastes 4, and for the love that burns in the hearts of a bride and groom, Song of Songs 8. Listen to this, though. But this very human word also says something about God in that it describes his passion for our salvation. Friends, the sending of God of his son to be a king, to be the king, would ultimately come through the means of the cross. For this would not be an easy road for the father. For he knew that in the garden of Gethsemane, his son would say, Lord, father, is there any other way? And he would in that moment deliberately and righteously stay silent. He knew that on the cross, he would have to see his son in sin for the first time. And then lavish his righteous, angry wrath on him. The one who he had dwelt with in all of eternity past. In perfect unity and joy and in love. And yet we read, I'm going to do this for you, for Israel. And I'm going to do this for you, world. And I'm going to do it in zeal. Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's how much I love you. I'm coming after you. Even though it's going to cost. Because I love you. My friends, if we don't see the loving and gracious wisdom of God in that, if we don't see his loving and gracious wisdom bringing about all things to pass in that, we'll never behold it. One more thing then in these verses. Behold the wisdom of God in his perfect timing. Look with me again at verse 6. He says, For to us a child is born... To us, a son is given. Now, a brief view of that will cause us to go, yeah, for sure, that's the moment when Jesus arrived. True. A brief view of that will go, that's Christmas. True. But you get the microscope out on it, and you start to see something more. Because you get the microscope out on that moment, and you realize God, in his providential wisdom, is perfect in his timing. And it's so easy to miss this. But if you study political history of this time, you realize this moment is divinely inspired. You see, at this season of time for Israel, Assyria is the main threat. They're the big superpower of the day. And so if anybody is going to bully Israel out of anything, it's Assyria. Assyria is going to come in and wipe them out because they are the big superpower of the day. In 626 BC, that changed to Babylonia. They became the big superpower of the day. They were the ones that were going to come in and strike everybody else out. 
539 BC, the big ones of the day became Persia. Persia became the ones that everybody was going to have to wrestle through and they were going to become the superpower of the day that was going to go for world domination. This is a season that is like risk being played out in real life. There are nations coming in to wipe other nations out and that's the way it was for many years. And in 331 BC then, in God's sovereignty, the Greeks came to power. The Greeks, fearlessly led by Alexander the Great, started to dominate across the whole world. All the known world started to become Greek. And they did some incredible things and some unique things in the way they dominated. See, as they came in to dominate cities, they were no longer just dragging people away to different places. They had agreement with cities and countries that if we dominate you and you bow the knee to us and you live as humble subjects, we'll give you plenty of freedom. We're going to own you and we're going to oversee you. But sure, we'll give you freedom. They just wanted to unify the world under Greek culture. They wanted everybody to be Greek. So they just wanted to take everything over. So every nation, they started to bow to them. They started to take off their different armed forces and so on and so forth. And the Greeks, to really help this process, started to introduce Koine Greek, the Greek language, into into all the nations. They designed it so that everybody's going to start speaking Greek. There was going to become a common denominator language in much of the known earth so that people could communicate to each other better. And they started to urbanize the world. The Greeks built towns, they built cities, they built transportation. And peace, by and large, started to spread throughout the empire. Until 63 BC. Those two young men, then in the year King Uzziah died, started Rome. Romulus and Remus founding the village of Rome. That village... Over 700 years would become a town, would become a city, would become a nation, would indeed become a superpower. And in 63 BC, Rome then stepped into the world. Rome started to take over everywhere, just like the Greeks had done. And yet they carried on much of the same thing that the Greeks had started. They still wanted to support Greek language as the main language. They still wanted to grow the transport systems and the communication systems. They were fine for peace to be in the land. Roman rule wanted to maintain peace throughout the known empire. And the cosmopolitan nature of the way the Rome did everything in the empire leveled many of the tribal distinctives amongst the world. New countries started to become open to new ideas. They were very open to the different things that different religions and different sentiments had to offer. My friends, there would never have been a better time in world history for God to send his king. Because it was in this moment that people are speaking the same language. It's in this moment that roads and transport systems are made. It's in this moment that the empires become cosmopolitan and they would be open to different ideas. It's almost like it was a divine setup all belong. And that's because it was. And at just the right time then, God sent forth his son. He died. And he rose again. And as those early disciples started to preach the gospel, because the timing was so perfect, the gospel was able to spread, as we saw in Acts, quickly and clearly, because there had never been a time like this in history. In fact, the Romans, the superpower of the time, were even protecting Christians for many years. Remember in Acts 19 and beyond? Who was protecting Paul from the Jews? The Romans. There had never been a time like this in divine history. 
all the variables of the earth God had created to come about so that just at the right time, he would send forth his son into this time. My friends, behold then the wisdom of God in his perfect timing. It's incredible, isn't it? You know, a brief overview of the book of Isaiah leaves us affected. But it's when we get the microscope out, I believe, that these same passages leave us staggered. My friends, I want to encourage you then. Behold your God in his gracious and loving wisdom. Behold his wisdom in the calling of Isaiah. His calling of this young prophet. Knowing that people would reject his voice. But calling him to say some things that the very remnant would then take on. Behold the wisdom of God in the working of his plan. For Israel appeared bleakly wiped out, but he was working a plan. For out of the stump of Jesse, a shoot would come forth. A branch that would bear fruit. A branch that always pointed us to a king to come that we see in Isaiah chapter 9 was indeed God himself. And behold his wisdom and his perfect timing. There had never been a time on the world stage like this one. But at just the right time for unto us a child is born. And to us a son is given. And as you look at that wisdom and as you look then at God, here's what I want you to know. Here's how we bring it all together and we apply it to your lives. The same God who wisely and providentially oversees the people of Israel is the same God who wisely and providentially oversees you today. My friends, the same God that oversaw Israel all along in the good times and in the bleak times, is the same God that the Bible makes clear is overseeing providentially and gloriously you today. How incredible is that? Jesus himself, when talking about the care of God, says, you know what, not even a sparrow can fall from the sky unless it be the Lord's will. That's how much he That's how much he's involved. That's how intimate he is with his people. Using all things for our good and his glory. Now there are times in all of our lives when things are going well, aren't there? And there are times that are good. And there are times that we rejoice over and enjoy. But there are also times in our lives where we can feel like Israel, are there not? Where we can feel like surely there's a fire just come through my entire life. In fact, I don't even think there's a lot left. And in those moments, we are so tempted, even as the people of God, to ask, why? Are we not? God, why? Lord, why are you allowing this to happen in my life? Lord, why have you taken them away? Lord, why am I sick? Lord, why are they sick? Lord, why is it that everybody seems to be getting married, but never me? Lord, why is it that everybody else seems to be having babies, and not me? Lord, why is it that everybody else seems to be getting jobs and things that are helpful and blessing, but I'd never do? I'm just stuck in this one. 
You know, when our Joshua was young and he had the health challenges he did, I was really tempted to ask the Lord why. When I found out, i never forget the day when he was born. And I got called in the next morning, very early in the morning, a call from the hospital. I left Emma and Joshua that night. I got called in the next morning and the nurse just said, you need to come quickly because your wife's not doing well and neither is your son. Emma had lost so much blood during the whole experience. She was in health troubles. And so was my son. I was tempted. Lord, why? I'm serving you. What are you doing? And then as Josh got older and they said, you know what? He's got a cleft palate, so he's going to have to have operations when he's three and he's five and he's seven. And you cry out to God for grace for those moments and you go in on that very first operation when he was three and they say, we just want to do a heart check because every now and again a child that has a cleft palate has heart issues. And, but it will be nothing, but we just want to check it. And, and they start to check it. And, and as he checks it, he just goes quiet. And we knew. He, he's got the heart issues, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. I was tempted. Lord, why? Lord, we don't want this. My friends, for all of us, we face times in our lives when we are tempted to ask why. But here's what I want to encourage you in. I think a far better question than why is who? Who is it that holds my life? Who is it that in grace and wisdom is overseeing his invisible hand in my life? Who is the one that sent his son to die in my place? Who is the one that forsook his son so that I would never be forsaken? My friends, I think a better question than why is so often who. And when you start to gather then around the who, the king of glory, you stand amazed because you realize God holds my life. Friends, that doesn't mean that we don't, in understanding providence, cry out to God. The Psalms have that as a fine example. And all the way through the Bible, we're called to cry out to Him for grace. When we're struggling with different things in our lives, we should pray. And God, in the mystery of His providence, is clear in Scripture that it's often through those different means that He brings about His providence. The prayer is part of the providence. And so when we're struggling with things, we need to be praying and Lord asking for His help and His change. Understanding providence likewise doesn't mean that our emotions are unengaged, that we should be unaffected by what takes place because, well, it's just the Lord's will. I don't read that in my Bible. I do read that it's the Lord's will, but I also see people in tears and affected and in anguish. We can both trust in God but still find it hard. Understanding providence doesn't mean our emotions are unengaged. And it doesn't mean we don't pray, but understanding providence, I submit to you, does mean that in and through it all, at the bottom of it all, we can be still and know that he is God. And we can trust him. Because the same God who is wisely and providentially overseeing the people of Israel is wisely and providentially overseeing you.
personally and particularly today. How incredible is that, don't you think? Behold then, his gracious and loving wisdom. Let's pray. Lord, your word leaves us speechless. When we consider your majesty, who you are, and your holiness, and your splendor, and your wisdom, that our minds can barely keep up and compute with how incredible you are, how you operate in all things, all the time, in all countries, in all dialects. You are outside of time, and yet in your wisdom, you operate in our time. Lord, I do pray that the lasting fruit of this message would not only be us being staggered with you, but it would leave us trusting you. Understanding that in your sovereignty, you are in control. And you're not just anyone high and far away. You're a father that sent his son for us. You're a father who called our names. And through your son, we now find ourselves seated at your table. You're a father who ensures us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And ultimately, although often, Lord, it be in divine mystery, you're a father who's always in control. Oh, Lord, would we trust then in your loving and gracious wisdom? that so clearly guides your invisible hand. And in you would we find a sweet peace. In Jesus' name, amen.